Tonight's going to be a message of hope. I actually kind of pulled an audible um, a few minutes before service, just feeling like this is the message that the Lord put upon my heart. I thought, if I only had one message left to give, what would I give? And this is it. This is it. I believe we have hope because in Luke 4.18, Jesus said, the spirit of the Lord, quoting from Isaiah 61, has anointed me to give freedom to the captives and liberty to the oppressed. Now, those are two separate groups of people. The oppressed are those who are innocent, like a widow or an orphan oppressed by the system, or like a POW oppressed by captors, could have fought nobly in a war, but is now behind enemy lines. But he also said he had come to free not only the oppressed, but the prisoner. Prisoners are guilty. They've committed a crime. They're culpable and have been indicted in court of law. So now they're behind bars. Jesus said in Luke 4, 18, I've come to free them both. The guilty and those who are suffering oppression innocently. He also said, I have come, the spirit of the Lord is anointed to me, Luke 4, 18, to heal broken hearts. Did you know the phrase, a broken heart was invented by the Bible? So the first time you ever see the phrase a broken heart, it crops up and pops up, drops by and stops by an ancient biblical Hebrew literature. So the Bible invented the phrase a broken heart. It traces the genesis of its origins back to the Bible. Furthermore, Jesus said, I've come to preach good news to the poor. We need good news. We have enough blues. <laughs> like, I don't know if you're aware of this, but bad news sells. That's why news feeds, they always repeat their stories every 30 minutes. And they usually lead with bad news because bad news sells. That's because neurologically, bad news sticks to your cranial package, your psychological constitution, and your cerebral gray cells like Velcro. Whereas good news falls through the brain like water through a sieve. So if you're on Facebook and you get 10 comments and nine are nice, but one is mean, what do you tend to think about? The mean one. That's because neurologically, we tend to gravitate toward bad news. That's what sticks. And so hearing good news is difficult for us to assimilate because we're so used to hearing bad news and that's what sticks to our brains like Velcro. So neurologists tell us you have to meditate on good news for 15 seconds. Like you have to actually pause for 15 seconds and really think about the good in order to um, really assimilate that information. So Paul was on to something when he said, whatever things are true, noble, lovely, just, pure, virtuous, and praiseworthy, meditate on these things. So he said, I've come to preach good news to the poor. I've come to heal the brokenhearted. I've come to set free the captives, the the oppressed, and the prisoners. He said, I have come to give recovery of sight to the blind. Paul said that his prayer for the Ephesians to the Lord was that the eyes of their understanding would be enlightened. And then lastly, he said, I have come to proclaim that the acceptable year of the Lord has come. Referring to the Jewish celebration of Jubilee when all would be liberated. In the same way, I believe that tonight we are capable of hearing good news. I believe that tonight broken hearts can get healed. I believe that people who are groping in the dark, wondering, is God like a divine spark within every living being, such as Hinduism teaches? Is he a non-relational force, such as like Star Wars Buddhism teaches? Is he like a non-relational warrior, such as certain facts, uh, uh, factions and sects 
of Islam teaches? Is he like a goody two-shoes moralist, such as some evangelical, you know, extremist Christianity teaches? Like, who is God? Is he a figment of the deluded imagination such as atheism teaches? Maybe tonight you're like groping in the dark wondering who God is. I believe he's going to open some eyes tonight. He's going to enlighten the eyes of our understanding. He's going to give recovery of sight to the blind. And I believe he's going to proclaim that the acceptable year of the Lord has come because that's who our God is. The Bible says our Lord is the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, Emmanuel, Messiah, the Prince of Peace, the Son of God, the Bread of Life, the Light of the World, the Way, the Truth, the Life, the Lion of the Tribe of Judah, the Door for his sheep, the Shepherd who lays down his life for his lambs, the Vine who gives fruit to his branches, the Word of God made flesh, the Alpha, the Omega, the Beginning, the End, the Resurrection, the Life, the Prince of the Kings of the Earth, the Amen, the Root of David, the Man-Child, the Beginning of God's Creation, He who wields the bright and morning star, He who holds the double-edged sword, the Captain of our salvation, the Image of the Invisible God, and the Anchor of hope. Come on. When you follow in his footsteps, there is always hope. There is always hope. So before we get into our text, I want to say one more prefatory remark. What you think about God is the most important thing about you. So if you want hope, you have to believe the right things about God. There's this branch of science that is really kind of revolutionizing CAT scans. It's called neurotheology. And what it is is neuroscientists are taking uh, brain scans of people and they're finding what's happening in their brains when they pray. So we can actually use like brain scans, uh, CAT scans, to see what's going on in people's brains when they pray scientifically. One of the things neurologists have found is that people who have um, religion have a stronger sense of identity than non-religious people. So if you believe in God, you have a stronger sense of identity than people who don't. Secondly, what we found is that when you pray, the frontal lobe of your brain uh, fires up into its highest intellectual capacity and you actually boost your brain intelligence by praying. So you actually get smarter by praying. Now I need this because I got a 2.0 grade point average and I don't have as many degrees as a thermometer. I do not have an alphabet after my name. Uh, the reason I got all C minuses is because my teachers didn't know how to teach a creative genius. I'm just saying. <laughs> Jokes. But no, I, I really did get a 2.0, and it's because I have as many IQ points as the Cleveland Browns tend to put on the scoreboard. But be that as it may, <laughs> bad news bears. Um, when you pray, the frontal lobe of your brain activates and fires up into its highest intellectual capacity, and you boost your brain intelligence when you pray. Furthermore, what we found is that when you pray to a God you believe is angry, And a lot of people do. They pray to God, hoping that they'll stay his wrath. They will avert his anger. They they will assuage his fury, hoping that perhaps maybe God won't be so mad at them if they can, like, pray enough. If you pray that way, (laughs) what brain scans have shown us is you'll have high activity in your amygdala. Your amygdala is the part of your brain that is responsible for fear, anger, stress, worry, and high blood pressure. It's what scientists call the the, the rat brain. So your rat brain goes crazy when you pray to a God you believe is angry. Conversely, if you pray to a God you believe is loving, you develop richer, thicker gray matter in your prefrontal cortex. And that's just fancy language for the part of your brain that is responsible for focus, concentration, consciousness, agency, and creative thinking. What's more, if you pray to a God you believe is loving, 
you'll have higher activity in your anterior cingulate cortex. Now that's the part of your brain responsible for empathy, compassion, feeling safe with God, and warm and fuzzy feelings. So you get like the serotonin overflow. Do you ever pray to God and you just suddenly feel like so safe? And you suddenly feel all warm and fuzzy inside? That's because your anterior cingulate cortex got activated. So the Bible talks a ton about, about your mind. Paul said, take your thoughts captive. Paul said, put your thoughts on things above. Paul the apostle said, whatsoever things are true, noble, lovely, just, pure, virtuous, and praiseworthy, meditate on these things. Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your mind. Jesus said, take no thought for tomorrow. Proverbs says, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. Isaiah 26, 3 says, you will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you. Psalm 1 says, as we meditate day and night on the law of God, we'll be like trees planted by rivers of water, bringing forth fruit in our season. Joshua 1 says, if we meditate on the law of God and don't turn to the right or to the left, we'll have good success. So over and over again, the Bible is teaching us about what we should do with our minds. And what the research has shown us is that if you pray to a God you believe is loving, you'll be more creative you'll have greater concentration, you'll have better focus, you'll have higher consciousness, you will forgive more quickly, you will stress less easily, you will have lower blood pressure. But if you believe God is angry, you're going to be stressed, worried, anxious, and furious because it's hard to put someone on your hit list who you put on your prayer list. And if you believe God's angry at you, you probably believe he's angry at other people too. That's why people who have a really mean theology tend not to be very nice people because you image whatever God you worship. And so my heart for you is that you would understand that what you think about God is the most important thing about you. That's not just a spiritual pastoral statement. That is true neurologically, according to CAT scans. So who is God? Well, I'm glad you asked. Let's take a look. Romans 15, 13, this is big. Romans 15, 13, this is uh, one of my life verses. Paul writes this. It's amazing. He often wrote from prison and yet said, rejoice in the Lord always. He got canned more than tuna. And he was just always filled with hope and joy. He writes in Romans 15, 13. Now, the God of hope, but everyone say God of hope. Fill you with all joy and peace and believing that ye may abound in hope. Everyone say, abound in hope. hope. Through the power of the Holy Ghost. Now, here's what's interesting about this text. Paul says that the Lord is the God of hope, and he's the one who causes us to abound in hope. So if you see him as a God of hope, you will receive from him the ability to abound in hope. How you perceive God dictates how you receive from God. You are made in the image of God in his likeness, Imago Dei. So whatever you believe about him will come forth into fruition in your own life. The English word belief comes from the Germanic origin by life. In other words, what you believe will come out by your life. That's why James, the book is not about faith and works. It's about faith that works. What you believe, you're going to put wheels on it. You're going to put legs on it. You're going to live it out. And so when you believe, Paul says, that he's the God of hope, what's going to happen? You're going to abound in hope. When you believe 
that the source of the universe, ultimate reality, the prime mover, the principle behind which you cannot go, when you believe that the creator God himself embodies, personifies, and defines hope, then what's going to happen is you're going to abound in hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. Why? Because you're made in his image. You mirror God to the world around you. It's funny, when we see a guy walk a dog, like, oh, cute, a puppy. When God sees a guy walk a dog, he's like, oh, cute, a human. (laughs) We're the highest form of God's creation. It doesn't say dogs are made in God's image. I love dogs. But it says we're made in his image. And so when you believe he's the God of hope, you are going to mirror hope to the world. Now, here's the problem. And this is something I'm trying to deconstruct to our generation. When you talk about hope, It has so much baggage and connotations with it. Motivational speaker, airy-fairy, happy-clappy, wishy-washy, hunky-dory, pie-in-the-sky, robustly flavored donuts of fun, everything's fluffy and A-OK, just wink at suffering and everything will be unicorns shooting rainbows out of their eyes, life rains, jelly beans and Skittles, and nothing bad happens. That's what people think when they hear, oh, this guy's going to talk about hope. Let Let me tell you something about hope. Hope in the Bible is not the way, is not used in the original like rhetoric and syntax in lingua franca. The etymology of the word hope does not derive its genesis from the American usage. Like how we use it today is it's like, I hope Selena Gomez asks me on a date, but that's probably not going to happen. I hope, you know, I hope Tom Brady won't deflate footballs against the Rams, but you never really know. I thought there were Rams fans here. Apparently not. There was like, Nervous laughter. I only talk bad about Tom Brady because he's so good and I'm jealous and I wanted the Rams to win. But be that as it may, I hope I win the lottery. I hope I get this parking spot. The way that we use the word hope, it's like, well, golly, gosh, goodness, maybe. The way that the Bible uses the word hope is totally opposite of that. The word in Greek is elpis. Would everyone say elpis? The word elpis means joyful, confident, welcome. Everyone say joyful, Joyful. confident. Welcome. That's the Greek word for, for example, when Paul talks to Titus about the hope of eternal life. The Greek word for hope is elpis, joyful, confident, welcome. Number one, it's joyful. Hope in the Bible is joyful. The book of Hebrews says, because we have this hope, we are very bold. The Bible says we have this hope as an anchor for the soul. Paul said, Christ within us is the hope of glory. Psalm 119 says, in thy word do I hope. The psalmist also declared, let us hope in you according to your mercy. The word hope in the Bible is joyful, confident, welcome. In fact, in Hebrew, the word hope in the Old Testament, in in the Jewish scriptures, the word hope literally means knitted. Hope is knitted to ultimate reality. It's not a drift. It's not without foundation. No, hope in the Bible is the looking forward to the future saving acts of God predicated on the foundation of the salvation that God has already wrought in the past. So hope in the Bible is intelligent. It's using a priori logic. It says, if God's been faithful in the past, then I can assume that I should be faith-filled about the future because I can be fulfilled today knowing that if God's never failed anyone, he ain't going to start with me. So number one, hope in the Bible, the word that he uses here is joyful. The fruit of the spirit is joy. John 16, 22, I give you a joy, Jesus said, that no man can take from you. Nehemiah eight ten. the joy of the Lord is your strength. 
We need more joy in our generation. We really do. Notice what he says in our text. The God of hope wants to fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope. He wants to fill you with all joy and peace. When people say, are you a glass half full optimist or a glass half empty pessimist? I say, I'm a glass totally full confident hope trovert. Because we just make up these words, introvert, extrovert, binary constructs made up by C.G. Jung, the psychologist, and optimist, pessimist. We just make them up. Psychology makes it up along with the word subconscious, which there's no place in your brain that's called the subconscious. It was made up by Freudian, Jungian psychology. But be that as it may, it's like, well, are you an optimist or a pessimist? I'm like, I don't believe the glass is half empty, and I don't believe the glass is half full. I prescribe to what David said, my cup runneth over. And even scientifically, miscellaneous fact... If the glass is half filled with water, half of it's filled with hydrogen and oxygen, and the other half of the glass is filled with nitrogen and oxygen. So yes, my cup does run over even scientifically. However you slice it, I have hope. He fills me with joy and peace. And that's what the word hope means. It means joyful, number one. He fills us with joy and peace. El peace, joyful. That's what it means. We need more joy. (laughs) You can't be too joyful. Like I've never met anyone and I'm like, oh man, they're just too joyful. I wish they just wouldn't be so joyful. I've never met anyone and I thought, man, they just, oh, they encourage me too much. <laughs> like, goodness gracious, they're just too much of a lump of sunshine, too much soul suntan here. Please stop being so joyful. You cannot put a glass ceiling on your joy. God wants to give you more joy. He wants to fill you with joy. You might be here and you're like, man, Ben, I have an awful lot of joy already. Well, don't put a glass ceiling or limit on it. He wants to give you more joy. I remember we were filming for our TV show last summer in France, and I was doing with my friend these flips off a dilapidated building into the Mediterranean Sea. And my friend Cameron, he was filming it. And after I was done doing these flips off this building, I was just lying on the sand. And my friend Sean comes in a few minutes later, and he's like limping and cracking up. And I said, Sean, what's so funny? He said, I just got stung by a jellyfish. I said, Sean, jellyfish stings can be excruciatingly painful, fatal, lethal. You should not be laughing. This is not a laughing matter. Why are you laughing when you got stung by a jellyfish? And Sean said, I realized that if I only have an hour left to live, I might as well enjoy where I'm at on the way to where I'm going. So I might as well enjoy the rest of my life. An hour later... He was totally okay. Now, maybe the book of Proverbs was onto something thousands of years ago when it said, a merry heart does good like medicine. (laughs) Did you know that that's what Solomon said? A merry heart does good like medicine, but a broken spirit rots the bones. Your joy affects your body like medicine. And what's interesting is this psychosomatic reality was written millennia ago, and now science is just catching up to that fact. Did you know it is a scientific fact that the more you laugh, the longer you're going to live? It is also a scientific fact that people who are depressed get colds more frequently than non-depressed people. When you laugh, it releases neuropeptides in your body, which strengthens your immune system. Did you know that laughing a hundred times scientifically has the same effect on your body as being on a rowing machine for 10 minutes or a stationary bike for 15 minutes? So if you want better abs, laugh at all my jokes. I'm just saying. Hope in the Bible is joyful. It's joyful. Psalm 126 verse 3 says, Then was our mouth filled with laughter. 
For they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things. Proverbs 31 says the virtuous woman laughs without fear of the future. Psalm 2 verse 4 says he who sits in the heavens shall laugh. Psalm 37, 12 through 13 says the wicked gnash their teeth against the just and plot against them, but the Lord laughs because he knows their end. What does that mean? When people are fighting against you, God cracks up and thinks it's hilarious because he knows he's betting on a fixed fight. I remember laughter, man. That's what hope is joyful. Like that's why the Bible talks about laughter so much. Martin Luther said, if there's not laughter in heaven, I don't want to go there. Martin Luther said, you have as much laughter as you have faith. And the Bible actually says God laughs when your enemies plot against you. Why? Because he knows your enemies can't win. He knows your enemies can't win. God doesn't take you. (gasps) We're just getting started here. God doesn't take you deeper to drown you. He just knows your enemies can't swim. Ask the Egyptian charioteers. Moses found that out when the Egyptian charioteers chased him. God doesn't take you deeper to drown you. He just knows your enemies can't swim. Oh, but Ben, they're talking about me behind my back. They're behind you for a reason. Oh, but Ben, you don't know the gossip they're spreading about me. Well, the book of Psalms says that the Lord has put our enemies under our feet. So if you want to say something to your enemy, you better write it on your sneakers because he's under your feet. (laughs) Your haters are your motivators. Tigers don't lose sleep over the opinion of sheep. God's just cracking up because he knows he's betting on a fixed fight. Listen, that's why we can love our enemies because we don't fear our enemies. We only hate that which we don't understand and that which we're afraid of. When we're not afraid of our enemies anymore, we can just throw kindness around like confetti and love them. Because we're not afraid of it. We defang the dark. We're like not afraid of them anymore. So, so the, that's why the Bible says God laughs when your enemies fight against you. Here's what that means. When I was a kid, I used to get beat up by this bully on my block all the time. Her name was Christina. <laughs> no, but in all seriousness, I... Uh, I did have these kids who wanted to beat me up a lot because I was very obnoxious, had a very high voice that sounded like a girl, and I was really annoying. Nothing has changed. But be that as it may, <laughs> whenever bullies wanted to fight me, all I had to do was run into, run into my front yard because the school I went to was just down the street from my house. So I would run to the front yard, and oftentimes my dad would be in the front yard. Now, my dad, when, when I was a kid, he looked exactly like Chuck Norris. It, it was like, before the jokes, I mean, I'm not saying this because now there's all the Chuck Norris jokes. I'm saying he actually looked like him. Like people thought he was Chuck Norris. Like Walker, Texas Ranger. It's like, no, that's just my dad. So my dad, like huge muscles. People see me, they're like, what happened to you? I'm like, I'm hoping for a glorified body one day in heaven, but not this day. <laughs> anyway, my dad, super buff, like just grim jaw, big beard. He would wear his bro tank, sun's out, guns out. He'd like mow the lawn. And I'd run into the presence of my dad. I never actually got in a fist fight with any of my schoolmates because I always just ran away. And where did I run? Into the presence of my dad. And if my bully dared to chase me into the presence of my dad, suddenly I would change my tune and I would start trash talking. You got a problem with me? Take it up with him. You should take a long walk off a short dock. If you want to fight me, he brought guns to the gun show. So now let's see who has the upper hand. So I'm trash talking my enemy. By the way, trash talk is biblical before you think I'm wicked. David said in 1 Samuel 17 to Goliath, you are an uncircumcised Philistine. If you're 
eight years old and you don't know what that means, go home and ask your parents. But basically, <laughs> it was ancient trash talk. He's like, in the name of the Lord, I will chop off your head. I will feed your body to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. And when I lop off your head, everyone will know there's a God in Israel today because you come at me with a sword, a javelin, and a spear. But I come at you in the name of the Lord of heaven's armies, whom thou hast defied. The battle is not mine. The battle is the Lord's. Oh, and David chopped off Goliath's head. So the Bible says that our God, Galatians 4, 6, is Abba, which means daddy. Because my God is my daddy. He's much stronger than Chuck Norris. Chuck Norris can curl iron, but Isaiah says God lifts islands as though they were a little thing, the prophet says. So he's not an iron curler. He's an island curler. (laughs) And because I look to the strong for strength, when I'm weak, then he is strong through me. So I don't have to fear my enemies. I can be joyful and laugh with him. Even when people plot against me, I know God's betting on a fixed fight. So he's just chuckling. (laughs) So... We need more joy. We need more joy. (laughs) Like we really do in our generation. I already love this church because I can tell it has joy. You're like, we're already a joyful church. I love it. Let's have more. Let's have more. let, Let me say this again. You can't have too much joy. And if Pharisees walk around saying, you need to fast twice a week and be so much better than the tax collectors and pay and play, pray in the street corners and blow your trumpets when you're giving and let everyone know how miserable you are. Just remember, those were the same people who crucified Jesus. What you need to do is say, I'm going to be so joyful. I'm going to go through life and I'm going to live for a living. I'm going to be a professional fun haver. <laughs> fun is fundamental. Jesus put the fun back in funeral. He caused the... <laughs> He caused the dead to raise, the lame to leap, the blind to see, the mute to speak, the deaf to hear. So yes, I will go through life with joy. Thank you very much. Jesus said, if you want to enter into the kingdom of heaven, you must become as a child. Now, Paul defined the kingdom of heaven, amongst other things, as joy in the Holy Ghost. In the book of Romans, Paul said the kingdom of God is joy in the Holy Ghost. And Jesus said, if you want to enter this kingdom, you must become as a child. Why? Because children have unlocked the secret to joy. Statistically, according to scientific research, the average kid laughs 200 to 400 times every day. The average adult laughs 13 to 17 times per day. Like I said, I'm not a rocket scientist, but I'm pretty sure that means the older we're getting, the less joy we're having. Maybe Jesus was onto something when he said, you must become as a child to enter into the joy of the Lord, which is the kingdom of God. Number one, it's joyful. Number two, and I'll go quick. Hope in the Bible, El Peace. Anybody remember the second one? Number one, it was joyful. Number two, it was confident. Number three, welcome. Confident, confident, confident. A few months ago, I was going through the drive-thru, uh, the drive-thru of a restaurant, and my friend called me and said, hey, Ben, have you read Kanye West's tweets? I said, no, I don't really make a habit of reading Kanye's tweets. <laughs> and he said, listen to what Kanye tweeted to the world. Kanye did not t- tweet this to an individual. He tweeted this to planet Earth. He said, and I quote, you may be talented, but you're not Kanye West. He said, I wish I had a friend like me These are actual Kanye West tweets to the world. He said, I may not be tall and skinny, but I'll settle for being the greatest artist of all time as a consolation. And then fourthly, he said, I believe in surrounding myself with winners. 
That's why I'm building a room full of mirrors. <laughs> now, when I think of somebody who's very sure of himself, Kanye West comes to mind pretty quickly. And yet, you know who would give Kanye a run for his Yeezys? Moses. In Numbers 12.3, Numbers 12.3, we're told, this is what Numbers 12.3 says, Moses was the most humble man on the face of the earth. Who wrote that? Moses. <laughs> that puts Kanye to shame. And, and to make it even worse, Moses wrote it in third person, like athletes and rappers. He didn't even say, I'm the most, hey guys, I'm the most humble guy ever. No, he's like, Moses is the most humble guy ever. <laughs> Writes Moses. Which, I mean, traditionally the books are, uh, ascribed to Moses. So that makes me think, maybe humility is different than I thought. Maybe true humility, Moses was the most humble guy ever, and he wrote that about himself in the third person autobiographically. Maybe humility is not walking around saying, nobody likes me, everybody hates me, why don't I just go eat worms? I'm such a humble Christian. Maybe humility is saying, it doesn't matter what I think about myself. All that matters is what God says about me. And if God tells me to write down the Holy Spirit-inspired book of Numbers, Moses is the most humble guy ever. I don't care if it sounds cocky to others. I'm going to humbly submit to what you say about me, God. The most humble thing Moses could do is to say, God, if you say this about me, that's what I'm going to write about myself. Because just so you know, Moses did not think he was all that in a bag of chips. When God called him to deliver Israel, he kept talking about how he couldn't talk. He's like, I can't talk. He made 10 excuses. You can count them, 10. So God apparently got a little annoyed and he's like, fine, I'll use your brother Aaron too. He'll be a priest. Now will you go? And Moses is like, okay, I guess. It's kind of a funny story. But God told Moses, write this down. Moses is the most humble guy ever. So Moses humbly submitted. That is the most humble thing you can do. The most humble thing you can do is not post on social media, hashtag current mood. I feel like a piece of garbage. The most humble thing you can do is say, I'm the head, not the tail. I'm above, not beneath. I'm a mago day. I'm made in his likeness. I'm made in his image. I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. All my days are written in his book. I'm, I, I'm a king. I am a priest. I'm a royal priesthood. Revelation 3, I'm going to share a seat with Jesus on his throne. Saul made, I'm crowned with glory and honor. If that's what God says about me, then the most humble thing I can do is be confident. And that's what hope is. El peace is confident. It's Godfident. It is meekly submitting to what God speaks over your life. That's why we should be super confident. I love your pastor. I was actually thinking about this when we were hanging out and talking. I'm like, there's a confident guy. Joyful, confident. That's how we're supposed to live. We're confident. And thirdly, hope in the Bible, El peace is welcome. That's what the word means. Joyful, confident, welcome. This joyful confidence is the threshold across which we welcome all the miracles of God into our life. Now, let me just share my heart for a second. You might be here and you're like, well, yeah, Ben, you're a young guy like Tigger on steroids. Of course you think all this stuff about hope. But here's the reality. The hope I'm talking about is not the kind that just comes because life is easy. I don't know how many of you are aware of my family's story, but have you guys ever heard of the Kennedy curse in politics? 
how, uh, you know, Joe Jr. was supposed to be president. He died in a car accident, so JFK took his place. He was the charming one. Then his last words were, look at how much Dallas loves us. And then he got shot in Dallas. So then uh, the next guy in line was Bobby, and Bobby ran for president. Then he got shot and assassinated on the campaign trail. So the next in line was Ted, and the sister couldn't run because she had a lobotomy done on her and couldn't think properly. And so then Teddy was left, and then Chapitaquist scandal happened, and he accidentally drove a, a woman off the side of a bridge and could never become president. He was just the line of the Senate, but he couldn't become president. And the whole political conspiracy is that there's this magical curse of the Kennedys. And a lot of people have speculated that in the church world with my family, like there's a coursing curse or something, because we do go through a lot of stuff. I'm just going to share my heart for a second, not so that I can like emote or be a bleeding heart, but it's been said people are impressed by your strengths, but they connect with your weakness. And Jesus didn't just say, hear my words. He's the word made flesh. He said, touch my wounds. So I just want to share with you for a second. This message is not birthed out of ease. Like just, if you know my family's story, I won't go into it, but just briefly, my dad's wife died in a car accident. And then my sister died in a car accident. And this last week, my brother died and went to heaven. And a few years ago, I, was, I went through a romantic heartbreak after an eight-year relationship and just got blindsided and went through 10 years of chronic depression and was actually suicidal. And I do write about that in my book, but I took up a knife to kill myself because it just got really hard. <laughs> And when you go through that stuff, you have to make a choice because you have to search deep. It's no longer just theoretical like, well, this stuff sounds good. It's like, do I really believe this? Because right now it's hard. <laughs> and I don't believe we have a course in curse, by the way. I believe we all go through trials and tribulations, traumas, tempests, and tragedies. Jesus told all of us in the world you'll have tribulation. But I believe that our fiery tribulations do not burn us. I believe our fiery tribulations forge us. I believe that God is a consuming fire who never burns what we are. He only burns what we are not. I believe that wrong will be worsted. Right will triumph. We are baffled to fight better. We sleep to wake. We fall to rise. We might have hell around us, but we have the kingdom of heaven inside of us. We are the people who've gone through hell carrying buckets of water for those still consumed by the fire. I believe that what Paul said is true. We glory in tribulation because tribulation produces perseverance. Perseverance produces experience. Experience produces hope and hope never maketh ashamed. I believe that Pain makes us stronger and tears make us braver and heartbreak makes us wiser and we're going to thank our past for a better future. I believe that not all things are good, but all things work together for the good because God is good and that's why I have hope. I really believe this stuff. When my sister died in a car accident, my brother delivered the news to our family in a way that we'll never forget. The night before my sister got in her car accident, she was joking around with our family uh, because my dad told her, Jessica, you have to marry somebody who can lead you. You have to marry somebody godlier than you, somebody more spiritual than you. And Jesse replied, well, that's impossible because I'm the godliest person I know. <laughs> Sounded a bit like Moses, but she was just joking around, just having fun, kidding around. She's like, what am I going to do? I'm the godliest person I know. Just saying it tongue-in-cheek, joking. So the next day, 
when she died in her car accident, my brother came home to our family and he relayed the news by saying, she's found her man. She's found her man. And I've often thought, what a bride of Christ my sister must be. What a stunning bride. And now my brother gets to see the bride of Christ walk down the wedding aisle. Somebody told me your brother graduated. And I just picture my brother graduating and the Lord saying, well done, good and faithful servant. When me and my dad a week ago were at my brother's deathbed, we didn't know it was his last hour of life. We were watching my brother take his last breaths and the song that came on the radio was a song from an obscure band from the 90s. It just randomly came on, like nobody planned it. It was a song by The Cry called Take My Hand and Walk. And when I heard this song, I looked over at my dad because I realized that was the song that was played at my sister's memorial service. That was her homecoming song. My dad looked up at me. He said, Ben, do you know what song's playing? He said, yes, I do. Little did we know that was one of the last songs Pete would ever hear. So his homecoming, without anyone planning it, was the same homecoming song of my sister's. So Pete walking down the graduation aisle, Jessica walking down the wedding aisle, the bride of Christ. I believe what Jesus said is true. Whoever believes on him who has sent me has passed from death into life. Why does our family have hope through this? Because we believe that death has been swallowed up in victory. We believe that the message of the universe is there is an empty tomb. That's what we believe. That's why we have hope. So what I really want to make clear, the reason I took some time to share that is because this hope, it's real. It's not motivational talk. It's not fluffy speak. This is the kind of stuff that Paul could talk about when he was getting scourged, thrown in jail, about to get executed and beheaded by Nero, Jesus going to a cross. The Bible says there was joy set before him. This is a hope that is buoyant in the midst of our worst times. It's interesting, Psalm 56, and I'll begin our initial descent, says that God collects all our tears in his bottle. God collects all our tears in his bottle. Your tears are not lost on God. They are caught by God. Every tear you cry, he collects them in a bottle. Did you know that in ancient Jewish culture, women had tear bottles? And they would collect their tears in a tear bottle. It was one of their most precious possessions. Their tears of sadness and their tears of gladness. They would collect them in tear bottles. Then when they got married, they would give it to their husband. And it was an act of tender devotion saying, I give you my heart. The sadness, the gladness, everything in my heart. This tear bottle, I give it to you. Very romantic. Seeing as it's Valentine's Day. Do you remember the story in all four Gospels where a woman washes Jesus' feet with her hair, her perfume, and what else? Her tears. One scholar suggests, that scholar being my dad, that what she was actually doing is she was taking her tear bottle and pouring it on Jesus' feet, thereby declaring, I'm the bride of Christ. And you'll take really good care of my heart. I'm not going to lie 
the past few months, because my brother's had health issues for 20 years and it was cancer that took his life. And so we knew this was coming. But like, there are times when I will break down crying. I'm not going to act like that's not real. Every few hours, it seems like I break down and cry over the past few weeks. But you know what I also know? Weeping endures for a night, but joy comes in the morning. That's the truth. So we are warriors. That's who we are. I was talking to a Navy SEAL friend of mine today on the phone. His name's Chad Williams. He's, he's awesome. He goes around and preaches too. But like, I love to, the Navy SEAL is the vibe. Like, I love to talk. I don't want pity. I want somebody to say, rise up out of the ashes now. I want somebody to say like, like, you know how they go through 96 hours of sleep deprivation during hell week? They get shot. They're taught, when they get shot, this is what they're taught to say. It's called cognitive restructuring. They're taught to say good times. So whenever they're shot, they're like, good times. And this convinces their brain that it actually is good. So they like run to the line of fire. It's actually amazing stuff. But like, I want to hear endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Those are the words of Paul. Paul didn't say, oh, poor baby. You should just lie down in the ashes and have everyone give you pity. He said, endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. We fight. That's who we are. We fight for hope. We take up the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, the shield of faith, which can quench every fiery dart of the wicked one, the breastplate of righteousness, the belt of truth, the shoes of the preparation, the gospel of peace. We fight a good fight. We wage a good warfare. We go hunt some demons. Our generation is the most depressed on record. We are actually going to change that. I don't care that sociological data tells us that Gen Z, Gen Y, millennials, post-millennials, centennials, most depressed generation ever. I don't care that they tell us there's no hope because People commit suicide 123 times per day in America, once every 40 seconds around the world. Suicide is one of the top 10 leading causes of death. I'm saying we're going to turn this thing around. I'm saying this is going to go from a mope generation to a hope generation. I believe that what Joel said is true, that the spirit of God will fall on all flesh and young men will see visions and old men will dream dreams and maidens will prophesy. You say, but Ben, you don't know what I'm going through. I don't know what you're going through. You say, Ben, you don't understand. Hashtag the struggle is real. I want to say, hashtag the struggle is real, but so is God. Life is tough, but God is tougher. Life is a battle, but the battle is the Lord's. And no one ever injured their eyesight by looking on the bright side. So we're not going to complain because rose bushes have thorns. We're going to rejoice because thorn bushes have roses. Our past supply is not our last supply. The more desperate the case, the more space for God's grace. God's love is the coal that makes the train roll. So we're going to be strong when everything's going wrong. We're going to hope and cope because we know that everything's going to be okay in the end. So if it's not okay, it's not the end. And it's okay if you're not okay. It's just not okay if you stay that way because the Bible says happy are those people whose God is the Lord, whose hope is in the God of Jacob, whose help comes from the Lord, who made heaven, the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. Come on. This is how we think. That's how we think. This is real. This is real. Listen, I'm going to close with this. People say like, why do you give 10 sermons a week? And right now I do. They say, why do you do this? Because I believe this. I literally want to give my life, every ounce of my energy to this singular mission of introducing people to the God of hope as imaged in the life of Jesus, who said, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. And the master of the kingdom was willing to bankrupt heaven, to sell everything he has, to become a penniless teacher from Nazareth and buy you as pearl of great price that he found dirty in a field, washed in the water of his word and went to the ends of the earth, even across, not to prove that he's mad at you, but to show that he's madly in love with you. That is a message worth living for. That is a message worth dying for. We do not mess around. We do not play. We're going to have a blast, but we're going to war.
Oh, I'm excited. You got me excited. And so, honestly, I, I, I know the worship team said this about the, the, the worship, but I, I honestly am preaching to myself. So sorry that you're like listening to this schizophrenic conversation I'm having with myself. But I'm honestly speaking to my own soul. David encouraged himself in the Lord, the Bible says. Uh, so what I want to do is I want to just close out this teaching. And uh, I just want to just bathe you in the word of God. And I don't want to close with my opinions or anything. I just want to close by declaring the word of God over your life. Because nothing, nothing, nothing has given me hope like the promises of God. So can I just close by just speaking a benediction of the promises of God over you? This isn't my opinion. These aren't my words. This is just straight from scripture. So I hope that you'll go your way with joyful, confident welcome, El Peace, abounding in hope because he's the God of hope. He's the God of hope. So one thing I want you to know tonight, he is the God of hope. So this is what the God of hope speaks over you. You go from glory to glory, grace to grace, strength to strength. As your days are, so shall your strength be. He turns your sorrow into joy, your mourning into dancing, puts off your sackcloth and girds you with gladness, gives you the garments of praise in exchange for the spirit of heaviness. Weeping may endure for the night, but joy cometh in the morning. If you sow in tears, then you will reap in joy. Then was our mouth filled with laughter, for they said among the heathen, the Lord hath done great things for them. We don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. For the Lord can save by many or by few. Is his arm too short that it cannot save? Is his ear too dull that it cannot hear? Thou shalt be the head and not the tail. Thou shalt be above and not beneath. Be still and know that I am God, for I will be exalted among the nations. As you meditate day and night on the law of God, you'll be like a tree planted by rivers of water, bringing forth fruit in your seasons that your leaf will not wither and whatever you do will prosper. Psalm 20, may the Lord grant you your heart's desire. Psalm 21, 2, the Lord has granted me my heart's desire. Psalm 37, 4, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Psalm 145, 19, he will fulfill the desire of those who fear him. He will also hear their cry and save them. Proverbs 10, 24, the desire of the righteous will be granted. Proverbs 10, 22, the blessing of the Lord makes one rich and he adds no sorrow with it. Psalm 36, I will not be afraid of 10,000s of people who've set themselves against me all around for the Lord is my life. In my salvation, the Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Even if my father and mother forsake me, then the Lord will take care of me. For many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. The Lord is nigh to the brokenhearted and saveth such as be of a contrite spirit. He healeth the brokenhearted and bindeth up their wounds. Happy are those people whose God is the Lord whose hope is in the God of Jacob, whose help comes from the Lord, who made heaven, the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Lean not unto your own understanding, but in all your ways, acknowledge him and he will direct your path for the path of the just is like the shining sun, shining ever brighter unto the perfect day. Even if I sit in darkness, then the Lord will be a light unto me. Commit your thoughts to the Lord and your work will be established. If you go through the waters, they will not overflow you. When you go through the rivers, they will not drown you. When thou walkest through the fires, thou shalt not be burned. No weapon formed against you will prosper for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but spiritual, mighty in God to the pulling down 
of strongholds. The Lord your God is a warrior. The battle is not yours. The battle belongs to the Lord. The Lord your God in the midst of you, he is mighty. He will save. He will rest in his love. He will rejoice over thee with joy. He will rejoice over thee with singing. He will never leave you nor forsake you. He will restore the years that the locusts have eaten. Lo, I am with you always, even unto the ending of the age. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men persecute you and revile you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for so they persecuted the prophets who came before you. All things work together for the good to those who love God and are the called according to his purpose. Now these things that were written aforetime were written for our learning that through the patience and comfort of the scriptures, we might have hope. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, noble, lovely, just, pure, virtuous, and praiseworthy, meditate on these things and the God of peace will be with you. Let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined and heard my cry. He brought my feet out of the pit, out of the miry clay. This is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. After Abraham patiently endured, he obtained the promise. We have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. We might be hard pressed on every side, but we are not crushed. We might be perplexed, but we are not in despair. We might be persecuted, but we are not forsaken. We might be struck down, but we are not destroyed. Because the God who begins a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived, nor has it entered into the heart of man what the Lord has in store for those who love him. Now unto him who is able to do exceeding abundantly above all we could ever ask or even think, according to the power that is at work within us, God cannot lie, and all the promises of God in him are yes and amen. Come on. This is our reality. This is our reality. We are not defined by our problems. We are defined by the promises of God. So we go into the future with hope. We go into tomorrow with hope. We bring the kingdom of heaven to earth because our Lord is the God of hope. In Jesus' name, let's pray. Father, you're so good. You're so good to us. You fight battles on our behalf. You are our Abadadi who lifts islands as though they were a little thing. We thank you that you are for us. When we kneel before you, you're going to stand up for us. When you stand up for us, no one can stand against us. In Jesus' name, amen.